I want you to open your Bibles today to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. So for those of you who are new, uh, I am so glad that you're here. I know many of you have just kind of held over from family time. You were here to support someone that uh, means a lot to you. Or maybe you're here for the church picnic and you came to be a part of our church today. So I'm grateful for that. And uh, I hope to even get to meet you before we're done today if I, if I haven't gotten to meet you. But we are going to focus our attention for the next several moments uh, in Genesis 2. So I'm going to ask Jared Harrison to come. He's actually going to be, begin reading in verse 16 of Genesis 2. So it'll be on your screen, but also if you have a copy of God's Word, take that and turn there. Good morning. Let's read together Genesis 2, starting at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you surely you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Jared, thank you for reading. It's so pretty common these days, maybe more common than ever. You can get background information from designers and creators who kind of pull you back into what they were thinking when they designed something or created something. So whether that's a podcast or a documentary, even a book, where you're pulled into a little bit more understanding of what the creator, what the designer had in mind. So you can hear what an architect had in mind with certain lights and shadows and angles and the way they have chosen to use space. When it comes to uh, a producer or director, often they will take you into how a particular shot was filmed, how a particular thing was staged. And they're letting you in on some of the background, some CGI, some way in which this was produced or directed. If it's a project designer, you can get inside in, in information into exactly what, what efficiencies and what contingencies were a part of this design. And certainly an artist, even musically, lyrically, I, I listened even this week to one of my favorite newer songs and I got to hear the, the lady who wrote it take kind of behind the scenes, say, this is what I was trying to accomplish lyrically and musically in writing this song. You, you get kind of this inside view, I think like never before. You hear an artist or a creator saying, this is what I was doing. This is what I was going for. Here is what is important to me. And I find so much of that as we read Genesis. We hear our great creator. We hear God Almighty saying, this is 
this is what I was thinking. This is my intention. Here is what I've designed. Here is the original intent for humans, especially over the last week, even thinking about humans specifically. I mean, God's creator of it all, but thinking about humans specifically, we're hearing God say, this is what matters to me. I formed, I formed human beings in my image after my likeness, that we would be a reflection of him. It matters to him that we know that, that that was his intention It matters to God that we know that he breathed life into us, that he gave us that first breath of life so that every human being who who is breathing, they have that breath that comes originally from God. When God tells us in Genesis 2, I put you in the garden to, with a mission, not just aimless, but to work it and to keep it. I put you in a specific place to cultivate, to preserve the world around you. I mean, God is telling us, he is telling us, this is the design. This is what I had in mind for, for humans. And we're, we're different in so many ways, but, but we share something in common as we hear our creator telling us, this is what it means to be human. Him telling us, this is what you mean to me. That's where we've been. And I want us to continue to build on that because Genesis builds on that. What Jared read just a moment ago was actually the first time in scripture where God kind of formally commands. So yes, God has spoken and things have come into existence, but there is a different word used for the first time in the entire Bible. And that is in verse 16, it says, the Lord God commanded the man. We have God commanding. He lays down this command, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. There's the restriction for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The first time God gives humans a command and implied with that command is also the capacity for choices. So God has designed humans with the capacity to make choices. God gives a command and we can choose to obey it. We can choose to disobey it, which becomes really serious and really significant. Reading carefully is important. Our hearts are inclined. I I shouldn't speak for all of us. At least my heart is often inclined to, when I read a passage like this, to go right to the restriction. So what's what's he saying I can't do? What's he saying that's off limits? Where, where, where's the line? I'm not sure why I can't do that. I, I don't understand the rationale. Why, why can't I do everything I always want to do all the time? Why, why a restriction? It's easy for me to even take that and go, well, is any sort of restriction is like, well, that's not fair. I, that shouldn't be that way. Why can't we just... It's so easy for us to go there, and sometimes this becomes such a big deal that we turn it into something repressive, how dare anybody tell me, how dare anybody put limits or boundaries or say, don't do this, do this. But if we read carefully, we actually, we actually will see God is generous. I don't want you to miss it. When God says, every tree of the garden, is that not just a wave of generosity that we see in so many areas? It's played out in so many areas of life where The Lord gives us all these things, graciously provides all these kinds of things for us. Says there is just a whole world of things that I've given you to enjoy, richly to enjoy. It's not as if the world is meant 
Like, I hope we don't view it through this lens of like, no, when I see the world, I see 10 billion no trespassing signs. Don't do that. Don't do that. I hope you don't see that. I hope you even see by this beginning command of God, every tree of the garden you can eat. And yet there is a boundary, isn't there? I don't want to pretend there's not. He does say, not this tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he tells us in very specific terms. And again, how good of God not just to leave us guessing? There's one tree and you better not eat of it, but I'm not telling you. Where it, I mean, God's not playing games here. This tree in particular, if we don't listen, he's saying you will die. Life as you know it will be over. Well, there's all sorts of books, as you can imagine, and even into theology and philosophy on okay, exactly, exactly what's going on with the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and how the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what all is this about and why this and why that. I mean, there's all sorts of things, lots of theories. But if we can just like pull back to just see it in its simplest terms, we see the boundary and the restriction and the consequence. And now comes the choice. You see, the choice isn't about like, the, the choice really isn't so much about the tree. It's about what's going to go on in our heart. The question will be like, do we really trust God's intentions? That's what the choice is always going to be about. Do we really believe him? Do we really think he knows what's best? So God gives a command and the choice, I know the choice is related to the tree, but I mean, the choice is related to our hearts. Do we Will we do exactly what he says? Do we believe whatever God says is actually good news and not bad news for us if we obey it and comply with the command? Can you walk with me for a moment? Christians sometimes will talk about, and I even heard it mentioned a couple times today at family time as well as here, we often will talk about a word called the gospel, the gospel, which is just shorthand. It's just a kind of compact way of talking about the good news, uh, that the good news, the announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus, the gospel, the good news. But when you think about the good news, I think a question we have to ask when God gives this command is that really, do we find that to be good news? Do we find it good news that God says, eat of every tree, this one, don't go there, that God gives generously, but that he does restrict that he does create boundaries. Well, frankly, if we're trusting God, we find it good news whenever God speaks and commands. But we live in a world that actually doesn't find this good news. That any limit or any restriction is seen implicitly as bad news, somewhat unnecessary. The creed that says no one should tell you what to do the mantra, I do, I, I do things my own way. No one tells me what I'm going to do. No one tells me what I'm going to think. Nobody says I can't. That actually, the look that authority is bad, limits aren't helpful, restrictions, any of them, you should be, uh, they should be eyed with suspicion. You see, that's kind of the, the story that many in our world would say, yeah, good news is found when you just go, no restrictions. 
That's what's really good news. And that actually is appealing. I mean, I don't like, I don't like to be told what to do, what not to do. It feels very appealing until you realize, yeah, a world of no limits and no boundaries, that's chaos. Like, life doesn't even work. Just play that out. Play that out this afternoon in your free time. No restrictions, no boundaries, just for you, and see how that plays out. And it'll actually be a very dead end you'll come to. So do we find it as good news, or, or do, do we not? Do we, do we appreciate the restrictions and the choices that God is giving? Even here, actually, re- opens up a different way of relating to God. I want you to see that. That human beings aren't going to be merely driven by instinct. That you aren't merely going to be a robot. That's not the picture that's given here. But you will make choices. And that will be a core part of how you relate to God. Whatever Christianity is. And it's a lot of things, isn't it? It, it certainly has to do with uh, uh, the things we would confess we believe in. The, the statements of faith we would make and say, I believe this. I, I am, I'm bound to this. I think this is true. All that would be would actually be part of Christianity, clear doctrine and clear things you must believe. And yet, a part of Christianity doesn't just leave it in kind of a mental ascent of saying, well, I agree to those facts. It actually pulls it to another layer in our heart and comes right down here. And actually, the whole Bible is filled with not just, not just a, a set of things where you go, yeah, kind of the user agreement where you just check at the end. You didn't really read it all, but you check it or you initial it and go, I just, uh, okay, sure, whatever. But actually... Hear passages like Deuteronomy 30 where Moses is saying, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, remain faithful to him for he is your life. See, God did not make you as our robot. He made you with the choice and with that choice he is profoundly glorified when you use that choice to say I'm going to choose him. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to follow in his ways. Jesus echoed this, did he not? We're part of our relationship with him. What's the greatest commandment Jesus? And we don't hear him immediately go to don't do this, don't do this, no, not all these kinds of restrictions. The, the greatest commandment is going to be love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. That's part of your choice. Loving is, is a choice you're going to make. It's a commitment you make. And that is hardwired into a relationship with God. John 14, 15, Jesus in the upper room, the night he was betrayed, would say, if you love me, you will do what I say. You'll obey, but you obey because you love. Our relationship with Jesus means we make choices. Jesus said in Mark 10, truly I tell you, like there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father. There's no one who's made all these sacrifices for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. It's a choice. Will you make that sacrifice for his sake? Even the passage in Revelation 3 presents Jesus standing at the door and knocking. It's not because he's weak, hardly. But because it will be about your choice. Will you open that door and have fellowship 
with Jesus. You're not hearing in Genesis 2 so much like, keep the rules, don't cross the lines. What you certainly are not hearing is some sort of cultural religion, some mental ascent that really doesn't mean anything to you, some religious duty that you must perform. What you're hearing is an invitation to a relationship that's built on you believing it's good news when God says, every tree, not this one. It's a relationship that God's inviting you into. The good news when God says, you can have all this and don't go there. God drawing lines and our choice to be devoted to him. I wonder if that is good news to you. To be human is to have the choice and that changes the dynamic uh, with our relationship with God, certainly. But I want you to look at another dimension of being human. Let's keep reading, all right? Verse 18. Verse 18 of Genesis 2 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, so I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, for the man, there was not found a helper fit for, for him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So many times God says, creation is good, it's good, it's good. I mean, every day, all seven days. It's very good what God has made. And there he says in this passage in verse 18, something's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. Is this about loneliness? I'm sure this has implications for loneliness. Is this about, like, the danger of complete self-sufficiency? I don't need anybody else. I'm sure it has something to say to that. What you actually find is it's not good for man to be alone, so he's just going to have to figure it out. He's going to have to work at it. And maybe over the course of decades and decades and decades, man can figure out this alone thing. That's not what you read. You actually see God taking the initiative when the man is alone, you see God taking the initiative, moving into action, saying, I will make a helper. I want to come back to that word helper, so kind of put a mental placeholder, because it does seem like after that, it, it's like we take this detour. I mean, normally when God makes something, it's like he speaks and it's done, and yet we have this, what feels like a detour where we have all these beasts of the field and birds and God brings them to Adam to see what will he name them. And we have this exercise, animals brought to the man. Again, a lot of speculation on why exactly is this. It, it seems to me at least that naming implies some sort of rule or authority. So the man is instructed here to name the animals implying a stewardship responsibility as well as a rule responsibility but it's just strange that in so many times the Bible just says God spoke things into existence and there they were. And here, God says, this is not good, but he takes Adam through this exercise. What seems very clear, and it's said a couple different times, did you notice it? For man, there was no counterpart. There was no helper. 
There was no companion. There is no one like him, no one he can relate to. And then with very careful detail, we're told that the woman's maid formed in a very different way, formed from the side of man, and another part of creation is now brought into this world in some ways very, very similar to the man, and yet formed very, very differently. God brings the woman to the man. So much here, but I want to start, at least can we start here, something that we see. And it's not only do we have the capacity for choices, but we also have a necessity for community. The necessity of community, a partnership, being together. There needs to be more than one, says Genesis 2. It's not good for a man to be alone. Once the woman is created, the man is not alone. This is, again, can we frame this like this is good news. We're starting here at the good news, the announcement of all that God has done for us, especially all that God has done for us in Jesus. You see, I mean, I, I ask whether it's good news, not, not to just be smart, not just to push unnecessarily, but, but we live in a world that says, actually, you don't need anybody else. You, you just are enough in and of yourself. I just want you to see how different that is than what we're reading here. When you read things like, I'm the complete master of my fate. I don't need anybody else or anything else. I am enough. I'll do things on my own. My truth is the only truth that matters. When you hear things like that, when you hear, I don't need anything, I don't need anybody else, what you're hearing is a very different kind of good news, which I actually find is not good news at all. But it is the counter. It is a rival. You can't just kind of blend that with Genesis 2. Because Genesis 2 says it's not good if you're alone. I mean, we can think I am extremely independent. And yeah, even in preschool, like kids are learning some measure of independence, and that's good, some measure. But there's nobody teaching like, you shouldn't need anybody for anything because it doesn't even make sense. We know, we know better. We know better. Beginning of life, end of life, and everything in between, we know better of what God has designed. We hear a better story from Genesis than it's just all about you and just make like the world bend to your reality. I mean, we hear something, I think, more accurate, more real. When you hear a a passage like Proverbs 27, 17 that says iron sharpens iron and one person sharpens another. Or you hear from Ecclesiastes 4, 2 are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. And if either falls, the companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. You're hearing a very different story. And you are hearing the good news that God has designed you to not have to survive alone. God creates someone corresponding, someone suited to help. So he creates the woman to help the man. And I, God creates a counterpart. And I don't know what you hear when you hear the word helper. And I, I think it's wise just to kind of reflect on that because if what you hear of like, okay, the woman helps the man, is that something like mommy's little helper or daddy's little helper and something that like takes you down and somehow is implying some superiority or in, inferiority? I hope you don't hear that. I know you wouldn't hear that if you read the rest of God's word when it comes to this word, helper. 
Because again and again, you know who is the main helper in the Bible? It's God. And too often, almost always in Scripture, it actually has military connotations. God's people are being pressed, and then a helper comes that will defeat the enemies. I wonder if we heard that with those ears, and then we realize, I need support. I need someone standing with me. I don't need to be alone. And then we become staggered at the design. Okay, God made, God brought a helper, a counterpart. The good news is that we were not meant to be alone. By the way, like this isn't just Genesis stuff. This is carried out all throughout Scripture. Even you come into the New Testament, and you find so often Jesus isn't just meeting with one disciple. Every life matters, sure, but he calls not just a disciple, but he calls disciples. And he speaks to them and brings them together. It's not good for Peter to be alone. It's not good for Andrew to be alone. It's not good for John to be alone. And he brings disciples together. He removes the stigmas of that culture and all the isolating aspects of stigmas. And he brings them into a community, sometimes telling like, go see, go show yourself to the priest so that you can enter back into community. It's not good for humans to be alone. Remember Jesus saying where two or three are gathered? That's where I'm present. Remember the analogy of Paul? It's not just that Curtis is the body of Christ, but other believers in a community, that's the body of Christ. We're given dozens of commands that can only be lived out in community. And then you get this picture in Revelation of people, not just an individual, not just like me with my cloud and my harp and nobody bothers me for it. That's not the picture of Revelation. The picture is almost like a bustling city with every tribe and every tongue living in perfect community. What we will never achieve in this broken world until Jesus comes back is achieved like instantaneously when Jesus is at the center of this every tribe, every language, every nation. And even if everyone leaves you, because let's face it, sometimes this whole idea of community gets broken. Let's face it, everybody. If everybody leaves you, there still is one who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never quit on you. I will be with you till the end of the age and nothing will separate you from my love. Humans are designed for choice. We're designed for community, but I actually want to dig a little bit more into this idea of companionship and community, because actually Genesis takes us there. Look at verse 23. So after God has brought the woman to man, look at verse 23. It says, then the man said, this is actually Hebrew poetry. It's not easy to translate or express that in English, but it says, this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man and therefore... It's like taking a step back, giving a a statement here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. We're not ashamed. We received the first teaching in Scripture on marriage, don't we? On marriage. And this is meant for, I mean, God's sovereign. He knows that those who would hear this teaching, this first teaching on marriage, would include those who, yes, are married, but also those who are single, those who are divorced, those who are widowed, those who might be children or teenagers, those who would identify as same-sex attracted, those who would identify as straight. This teaching comes from God. 
God brings the woman to man. And he notices, I mean, she is like him, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Something very much like a part of him, not a hint of domination or superiority, but someone that will be cherished. She is different from him. And then we have these timeless statements. I want you to see them in verse 24. I I want us to appreciate all that's being said there. This is something for all time. We have a man and a woman, and we have them first, like, leaving. So it's, it's basically saying all other earthly relationships. Of course, there are going to be earthly relationships. But when, in the context of marriage, they leave father and mother, and they come together. So certainly, friends and family will matter. They will matter. They will matter a great, great deal. But there is something unique about this. This relationship will be exclusive because a man leaves father and mother, a man and a woman leave father and mother and they hold fast. There's something exclusive embedded in that term, hold fast. So it, it's not something that, where things can get in between, where something separates, nothing opens this up. The idea is like, they're going to hold fast together. They're going to be together and this is permanent. It's meant to be permanent. Let, let's just hear God's design. They're holding fast. I mean, we have more instruction down the road on marriage and on singleness and certainly on divorce. We have more instruction, but let's just hear this. And then the intimacy, the two become one flesh. This isn't just grasping for words. I mean, we hear that one flesh and it may even sound cliche. I hope it doesn't because it's anything but cliche here. It is meant to give us something far beyond just like really, really together with two people that are really passionate for each other. Like this, it's meaning so much more. It is meaning together, something new and sacred, one flesh where there were two. Now there's one and notice that it says they're naked and it gives us the context for, even implied in here is the context and the only context for a sexual relationship. And sex is meant to deepen the unity between the husband and wife to bring them together. Physically, yes, I mean, it's the perfect fit, but it's psychologically and emotionally and even spiritually, and this is God's design. And once again, I need to acknowledge what you know already, and that is everything that I've just said of how God laid this out, I believe to be good news, and there are competing stories that would say, that's not good news at all. It is that different. There's, there are people that see this very, very differently when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to marriage. And I acknowledge that. Uh, so many voices in our world see marriage as kind of a flexible contract between consenting adults. If it works for them, great. If it doesn't, it's fine. So many people would see sexual expression as, no, you just, you just make the rule, whatever you want. As long as consent, sometimes it seems like, sometimes it seems like people don't even care about that. You just kind of whatever you decide, you make the choices. And some people find the the story of Genesis two actually bad news and find like I'll just do whatever I want. I'll treat marriage and sexuality however I want to treat it. And we live in a world where you can live by the slogan. Love is love. But if you take the love is love over, and all that that implies, over Genesis 2, I just want you to realize you are missing that marriage actually has a unique 
design. You are missing something important, and that is, it's not just love is love. Actually, the way scripture would word it is God is love. And it's way overly simplistic to imply that all loves are exactly the same. We know they're not. We know they're not. We know there is love expressed in different ways in different human relationships. The way I love a friend is different than the way I love one of my family members, which is different than the way I love my own kids, which is very different than the way I love my wife, which is very different than I love all my brothers and sisters in Christ that I am related to and I will share eternity with. So the slogan may sound cute, but we've got to recognize there's a place for romantic love, There's a place for sexual expressions of love. And God restricts that. God sets boundaries. Marriage is meant to be, and hear this, it's it's meant to be sameness and difference. Well, certainly we're, we're marrying a person just like the man and the woman are so much the same. Created in God's image, created in God's likeness and yet different. And it's that difference that God is bringing together. God in his wisdom knew there'd be a deeper bond in those differences of gender and sexuality, a union that brings together difference. And it won't do to say, well, Jesus didn't talk about this much. Because what's very interesting to me is when Jesus does talk about marriage, which he does a lot, he does talk about sexual sexuality, and he does speak of it. He takes us right back to Genesis 2 and says, this is the design. He he quotes this verse, Genesis 2, 24. So unless we're prepared to say, Jesus is mistaken, and he just kind of, like, we just got to bring him up with the times, then you're reinventing and rewiring God's word. Say, well, he didn't know about all sorts of, like, sexual promiscuity. He didn't know about that. I mean, this is the Roman Empire. Certainly he knew. Certainly the culture of the day would have promoted a level of sexual permissiveness that is not allowed. I spend some time here. I don't mean to imply that all the questions, like, there you go, they're all answered and nothing is ever difficult. That's actually not true because marriage can be very, very difficult at times. And fighting sexual temptation can be difficult often. And living in sexual purity as a single person can be difficult. And living with same-sex attraction can be difficult. But we look at the picture and we say, where whatever the difficulties lie, our heart is going to be to honor the picture that God has given us. God is giving us a picture. And I don't pull out my editing pen and go, let me help you with that as if I can improve on what he's given us. And there's at least one major reason why, I mean, there's many, but there's at least one major, and that is because this picture of marriage is embedded into Jesus and his work for us. You see, Jesus took on flesh, so in many ways, he's the same as us, right? He's the same. He took on flesh, he breathed, he had, would have gotten colds, he would have, if he would have fallen, he would have gotten hurt. I mean, he, he is the same, and yet, oh, he's so different. Praise God, he's different from us. Praise God, he was perfect where we're so sinful, which means he's able to save us. 
And scripture takes this picture of, yes, the same and different. And human marriage is meant to reflect Christ loving the church exclusively. Committed to our good permanently. Costing him his life on the cross, laying down his life. And God's people are the bride of Christ. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 5 and Revelation closes this picture. It closes, actually it closes. So we kind of have a, a wedding here at the beginning, if you will, at least a marriage at the beginning, God bringing together the man and the woman. And we close in Revelation with God overseeing uh, a union, a marriage between Jesus Christ and his bride, the people of God. You see why this picture is so important. All along, this was pointing to an exclusive, permanent covenant relationship where we're known and we're loved for eternity. And I want to ask again, do you see that as good news? Do you see that as a better story than any other one that you or I would make up to make our lives more comfortable? We go back to the artist sharing about their creation. We go back to the director or the producer saying, this is why I did this. This is why I filmed this this way. Here we have the intentionality and you hear God. Let's just hear it clearly. God says, I will give you marriage and marriage will give you a small taste of my commitment to you. If you are mine, I will not leave you. I will be close to you. I will not give you up. I will take care of you. We are together forever. And I want you to see God as creator and designer saying, I will give you community. It is not good for you to be alone. On one side, you weren't meant to be completely self-sufficient. You can't do life on your own. It's not good for you to be alone. Life is too hard for you to take it without the friend that sticks closer than a brother. I will give you community. And I will give you everything you need for life and joy. But that comes with limits and boundaries. There will be restrictions on things that are not for your good. And you will have to trust me with those. They're not arbitrary. And part of your devotion to our Heavenly Father is to take by faith what doesn't always make sense to you. This is God pulling it back, saying this is the original design. I want to ask our worship team to come. We're going to sing together about the faithfulness of the Lord. But before we do that, um, again, I'd like for them to come. But as they're coming, I want us to read a passage of Scripture together. It's taken from Romans 11. It'll be on the screen. If we could put that on the screen. Because everything that I've just shared, like this feeble brain could not invent this perfect design but I want us to read out loud together and confess exactly who God is, confess what we believe about his design. So can we read this together as a church family and then we will sing. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.